Space Live. I always clap. I'm like, yeah. welcome to Brave Space Live, a show about anti-oppression and communal healing. Each week we dive into a hard-hitting topic and dive right into the awkwardness. And I never disappoint by starting off very awkward. I'm Tyshell. I'm a trained clinical social worker, educator, and diversity, equity, inclusion practitioner. And this is my co-host. I'm Mel. I'm an author, an activist, and a social ethicist. Awesome. So today we're going to be talking about adoption overall, but transracial adoption. It's been something that I have been interested in for a really long time. Um, in Philadelphia, you do high school English reports, and I did mine on adoption, and I found a book. And this is what, Mel, this is why I brought this topic up even last year. I did a, I found a book that talked about, uh, it was called Of Many Colors, and I have a copy of it, and it talked about um, adoption, both, you know, adoption of same race and then transracial adoption. And I was so intrigued by it that I did my entire project on it. I got a good grade, but I feel like I learned a lot, but not, but it was a lot about the voices of the parents and not of the voices of, um, adopted folks. So I have been going down my TikTok university class list and listening to the voices of transracial adoptees and adopted children and just hearing what they have to say. So when this came up and we worked with our producer, Darling, um, to bring this, I thought, hey, I know somebody who is an adoptee. Um, I'd love to have them on. So we are going to have a guest. Uh, Mel's going to read his bio. Yeah, so we are excited to welcome Adam Jackson, who has been a leader in a Fortune 100 company for many years, very fancy. In his work, he is focused on associate and community well-being. He, he has facilitated inclusion and diversity or anti-racist trainings and workshops for K-12 schools, nonprofits, and corporate leaders. Adam has a history of working collaboratively with community organizers organizations that share common values of grounded in anti-racism and re-envisioning our community's needs. Yes. Um, let's go ahead and welcome Adam Jackson to the show. Thank you so much, Adam. Yay! So confession, <laughs> I have to say this, um, and I always lean to the wrong side. Um, I've known Adam for a, a little bit and we've worked together for a while and uh, when he first joined, the, he came into the room, he was like, I'm going to put on my, what I call, we, we call each other um, partner in crime, so PIC. And I was like, you have to, people don't, other people don't know what that is. And Mel was like, I just thought, I just didn't understand that joke. And I was like, no, it was it was him, not us. But, yeah, his, so his name was PIC. And I was like, I thought I didn't understand it just because I was white, but. <laughs> I'm white. It's, it's, it must be a joke for white people. <laughs> Welcome, Adam. I'm so glad you're here. Thanks, yeah. Mel. Thanks, PIC. Thank you, PIC. So we just we so I have been we've talked about this topic a little bit in some of the work that we've done together, um, and I've always been interested in the topic and to learn more because I've I think I've always been interested because I've wanted to adopt children, but hearing more from adoptees I think is really a great place to engage with this work, and I think. 
I keep saying I think just the the work of diversity, equity, and inclusion has to engage adopting, especially when we're talking about now everybody thinks that the answer to Roe v. Wade is people adopting children. You're like, wait a minute. So we'd love to hear um, some of your background, your story, um, where you're from, how you how were you were raised, any anything that you want to share with us and the people and in general. So tell us about you. Yeah, well, thanks. And I would open by saying TikTok University probably has a lot more knowledge than I'll be able to share tonight. Um, I'll be able to share my experience and my, my perspective on transracial adoption. But to be honest, even as I was reflecting on this um, over the last couple of days, getting ready for the show, was this is not a topic that interested me growing up. Like you were curious in high school, Tyshell. Um I can remember the first time that I was really interested, even though I shared my story of adoption many times, that was just it. It was something in the past. And it was in 1997, I went to watch a movie called The Amistad um, about the transatlantic slave um, trade. And, and as I was watching it, I just thought I was fascinated by the story that I never knew. And I walked out of the theater with my best friend growing up and I looked over and he's a, a white guy and I looked over at him. I said, wow, that was really powerful. And and I, I don't even remember what his reaction was, but it, it wasn't the same meaning for, for him as it was for me, because for me, it was like, I want to know my story. Like, mm-hmm. if you don't know this story, I need to tell that story. But first, I need to tell my own story. And then I took a class that that fall at my senior year of college um, called African-American Autobiographies. And, and that is where I had this um, seminal professor that really made me think and shared stories, again, that I had never known, known about African-American writers, activists, um, survivors, uh, that um, the, the first day of class, she actually made us start writing our own autobiography before we even read, read anything. <laughs> and, wow. and so that's the first time that I ever even thought, hmm, what, what is my story? Uh, and, and adoption, and, and what would that mean? And from there, over the last, I'll age myself, 28-ish years, um, it has been a, a much more healthy, I think healthy, look at trying to discover, trying to understand, and be more open to what my adoption has meant to me personally, um, what it means to other potential adoptees, as I have met um, some other adoptees. It is like having a community that I never knew um, mm-hmm. that were almost like my siblings from the moment we walked in the room. It was um, just amazing. So that's so interesting. So you were adopted. Where? And I, I think I would say asking so people know more. Like, where are you originally from, and what can what family kind of family structure were you adopted into? Did you grow up with people who looked like you? Were there people in your neighborhood who looked like you? Did you know you were Asian? That kind of thing is, <laughs> I, I, I've heard people say that, like, I'm not Asian. And it's like, I watched a, I watched a video of a, of a classroom where they were talking about this. And this girl was like, I'm not really Asian. And I was like, you're not? Like, I don't, I don't get it. So tell us more about, I guess, about that. Where, where Adam hails from originally, I guess. Where are you yeah. really from? Is that, <laughs> that's the question where people ask that? Yeah, I'm gonna get canceled. That's I know that's what people ask. That's I'm gonna get canceled. Where are you from? No, where are you really from? <laughs> yes, and I didn't even know. I didn't even have the language 
to really understand what that question, what those two questions really meant growing up. Um, because uh, well, I'll share a little bit about that as as the space that I grew up in. But I was originally born in Vietnam right at the end of the war. So August of 1974, for those that don't know the, the history of the war, it ended the U.S. troops pulled out in April of 1975. So um, I came over on what was called Operation Babylift. Uh, so April 6th or 7th-ish. Um, 1975, and it was um, an evacuee by a number of agencies, uh, public, private, military, um, working on getting a, a number of orphans and, uh, and young adults um, out of the country. And the first plane actually crashed. Uh, it was a C-5, um, you know, it was one of these huge jets that bring in tanks, bring in trucks, bring in the heavy artillery. And they were they packed it full of banana boxes and children and uh, shortly after takeoff it it crashed into a rice field um but i was on the second plane out and um and via guam seattle i made it to chicago where my parents um so two white parents um who had were my adoptive parents um, who are my parents today uh they had previously had a, a daughter biologically. They had adopted my brother from a, a small town in Wisconsin um, near Milwaukee, uh, and he identifies as uh, black. And then they had another daughter. And then, so I was the, the last of the Jackson kids. Um, but it was a really small town. It was a, a, a town called Lodi, Wisconsin. It had, I think, 19, Never heard of it. 1900 and some um, people maybe 19, 1912 when I was growing up, and it felt like 1912 in the sense that it was all white. It was it was a sundown town in many respects. Um, again, I didn't know that back then, but um, right across the street, the, K, the local KKK was burning crosses uh, from our house. And so those were the things that my parents um, had to live through and kind of struggle with and uh, be in community with. Now, why why? Some parents might not say, okay, I'm getting the hell out of here. Might have been one reaction, but my, my dad was a teacher uh, at the sc local school. My mom um, worked at the church uh, and taught piano lessons um, uh, as she was raising our family. And uh, it was an all white town. So white schools, white church, white um, businesses, banks. Um, and in many regards, um, my parents benefited from the the white privilege. They didn't have a, a a lot of money, but they were able to secure a loan from the local bank because they believed my dad was an upstanding person because he's a teacher. So of course he's gonna be good for it. And um, so, but our family benefited from it um, having grown up there. And then after um, Lodi, I, I went to school in Madison. Uh, finished high school, or I went to high school in, in Madison. Went to college in Madison. And then have lived in Chicago and Columbus, Ohio, and and now reside in the great state, back in the great state of Wisconsin, up in the frozen tundra, also known as Green Bay. <laughs> awesome! Wow, I'm, I'm like so to hear to hear the part about the first plane crashing and you being on the second one is to me that's so impactful because. Uh, I don't know if ever anyone survived from that crash, but that's, you know, how close we come to different things in our lives. 
by being in one different place or having one different engagement in life is so it's it's wild to me. So uh, thank you for sharing that because I'm sure it's not an easy. And I know one, one of the things that Adam and I talk a lot about is uh, Resma Minikim's book, My Grandmother's Hands, and, and just Resma Minikim's work in general. And he talks about this concept of clean pain and dirty pain. And, and dirty pain is the pain that like we don't engage mm -hmm. with and that still exists in our background and still exists and we are not working through it. And clean pain is the ones that you've worked through. So I think about that and, and hopefully it sits in your place of clean pain versus mm -hmm. Um, dirty pain. Mel, you just have such a like an inquisitive That's look. That's awesome. I, I've never heard that before. And it's really yeah. useful to describe some of these experiences that people go through. Yeah. yeah. So, and I was struck by that image too, when you talk about, so, so maybe you said this and I missed it, but what was the, what was the impetus for taking, to, for taking children like you to a different country? Like what was, what went into that? You know, I, I don't know the exact answer to that. Um, from a, there was a number of charities, um, religious institutions that were there. So I think they they were trying to do good work at the end of the war. They they it kind of plays out if you've ever seen the musical Miss Saigon, um, where uh, I think the perception was anybody that's left behind that was um, from the south that was going to be overtaken um, by the north that they were going to be have a horrible life. And so they these agencies were trying to um, take these children out and they were adopted across the world. I mean, literally from Europe to Australia um, and then the United States in uh, Canada had large populations uh, of children that were adopted. And I, in my senior year of college, I started researching a little bit more about it because I, I wanted to know about the veterans that were a part of it. Um, and, and was able to connect with some of them. I mean, this was back in the day where I barely had an email. Uh, it was, that was a pretty new thing. Tyshell will joke that I'm a little bit older, um, but so this, I was on the cutting edge of, of technology, but then- Listen, I was one of the gr first groups of people that had a Facebook, so I get it. Yeah. You had, I, was, I got Facebook when you had, to, I had just gotten into college and you had to have a college email to have a Facebook back in the day. Wish that in you. And so being able to reach out and connect on the, on the web, being able to see stories in the names of the, the people that have passed away on that first flight, but then actually connecting with many of the adoptees that were on the flight that survived. Um, we got together uh, a couple different times, one in the Washington, D.C. Um, to commemorate, I believe it was the 20th anniversary of the baby lift. So we were together as adoptees with some of the veterans at the, uh, and we had a ceremony down by the Vietnam Memorial. And then the adoptees, uh, we also got together in Colorado uh, one summer. And uh, we were able to just spend time catching up and, and Living. See, I, I imagine that being like a, a hugely diverse group of people, right? Like all you all look the same, right? Or mm -hmm. to some degree, not actually look the same, but you all come from sort of a same culture, but wildly then different cultures because of where you may have been. So maybe we all like, and I, and I say that in terms of like, if I'm at a group, like I went to a Juneteenth event and there's like oh all of all of these black people but we all come from different places right and thinking about what that must have been like 
for um, one of your uh, adopt fellow adoptees who has an Australian accent or a Southern accent, or they uh, th their style of dress, the way they talk, the cadence, all of that must be like, so. It sounds so interesting to me because for us all to be of the same um, race or, or ethnicity, but then have such wildly, and to be in one place while we're doing that, right? Because everybody, there's people all over the world that look different from me, but like who all look the same and then sound different. Because I get, I get excited. I get excited and also a little thrown aback every time I hear a black person with a British accent. I'm like, that sounds so different. You look like me, but you said pip pip cherry. No, they're gonna die there. I'm gonna get canceled seven times this episode. But I just imagine that must have been that it must be powerful and then different and so enriching. It, it, it was. And um, although many of us, most of us looked Vietnamese, um, a, as you may know as well, is there's a lot of American GIs that were white, that were black, that had children. Um, with these Vietnamese women. So there were kind of even a, a, a spectrum of different um, people that were there as well. So I never knew that you could be black and Vietnamese. I never knew you could um, be from Australia, but have a very li similar lived experience than I had in Wisconsin because right. she was the only white, the only Vietnamese person in that predominantly historically white town in, in Australia. So it was bridging a lot of gaps and, and opening a lot of um, things that I never even considered. Uh, wow. So this is a really basic question, but how do you feel about being adopted? You know, it, it's something that um, so I, I introduce a, a, a concept in anti-racism work um, with Aishel uh, around cognitive dissonance. And I, it, it really, um, I've learned a lot about having to sit with the uncomfortableness that there's no clear right or wrong answer i think i've lived a very um good adoption life and i know that's not true of all adoptees um i have really supportive loving caring parents um and siblings that have that are that are family and like like any family at the same time i also struggle with uh, knowing that there is trauma there, trauma that I've not always explored or trauma that <clears throat> probably shows up in different ways that I, as a kid, I wasn't even worried about because all I, all I was worried about was I wanted to play baseball. I wanted to um, be with my friends. I didn't want to look at that trauma. I didn't want to feel that, um, that kind of counseling that my parents tried to introduce me to even when I was younger, because I was like, what do I need a counselor for? Like, I'm fine. But now as a, an older adult, I, I understand that there is a lot more that I need to process through. Um, and even with my parents, having to wrestle with my parents, asking them tough questions like, why did you adopt me? What, as, as white parents, why did you think it was important that you would adopt transracially? And the answer, right, wrong, or indifferent, is that was my mom's plan. My mom is a planner. She's a, a type A. I'm going to, here's my plan for life. I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. I'm going to get my PhD, and then I'm going to go do this. And then, like, she just retired, and we're all worried because um, what is she going to plan next? Because she doesn't have the next semester. She doesn't have 
the next uh, trip that that she's planning for. So that was just part of her plan. <clears throat> and now is I've introduced them to the works of like Robin D'Angelo or Debbie Irving or people that really question white people from a white perspective. Um, it, it's opened up some, it could be challenging conversations, but my, my parents have been very open to talking about it and not always having the, the best answer. Because um, my mom, <clears throat> good white woman, she would, even growing up, she would teach us, hey, treat each other the way that you'd want to be treated. We, we're colorblind. We know that we're going to have different experiences because of who we are, but uh, if you get in an argument, just walk away or, or don't look at people based on what they look like. Just treat them like good people. And, and as I've got older, as I've been doing my work over the last many, many years, um, I've had to go back to my mom and say, why did you say be colorblind? Where I'd, if people were colorblind to me, and Taishan, I'm going to circle back to what you were saying earlier, um, that, that discounted my experience. That discounted who I was in the room because it, it was, I experienced discrimination and racism regularly, but I could never process it because I just thought I was like everybody else. And even in high school, some of my closest friends thought I was white because that's probably how I acted because I didn't have an accent. I was good at athletics. I was good at music, things that um, we didn't always see a lot of Asian people participating in. And so they just, it, it was like, I, they almost adopted me into a white culture um, without recognizing who I was. So. It's so interesting to me because I, I will say the first time I met Adam, I could not. I was like, I don't know, because because <laughs> because of his last name, because of his first name, because of way I was like, I'm not sure what. And it was it was when he said he had. Uh, we were working together, and there was these sheets where you talk about yourself as a part of this uh, getting to know people. And I was like, oh, okay, this makes sense because I have no idea. I was like, is he Filipino? Is he Latinx? Is he? A white I don't, I'm not really sure. And I think that's one of those things when you engage, like nobody's walking around going, Tesha, are you black? Like that, that's not a thing. I, I remember the first time I was asked by a friend of mine, uh, what kind of black I was. And I was like, I don't, what do you write? And, and my answer literally ninth grade, a friend of mine, um, she's a friend of mine now. She wasn't a friend of mine then. She goes, what kind of black are you? And I was like, regular black? Like I had no idea. But what she meant was like, are you Jamaican? Are you um, you know, African, like uh, Nigerian, things like that, or, you know, Zimbabwean. And I was like, she's like, well, I'm Italian and Irish. What kind of black are you? And I was like, we don't, that's not a thing we do. So, so it's so interesting. I'm always, I, I never ask because it is a question that I think um, what they, they call it alien in your own land that Asian get Asian people get asked a lot, like what kind, where are you from? Where are you really from? Those kinds of questions. So I don't ask, but I think we always wonder like, oh, what you know, and I, I just, now I just start asking white people those questions. Like, I'm sorry, what kind of white are you? What kind of European? What, what European are you? You're a European American. What kind are you? That kind of thing. But, but I just think it's so interesting to think about one of the things you talked about was growing up and not, being or being amongst white people, did you think that you did you think that you were white, or what was your inclination about being different if you felt different? And did yeah. you and your brother, who you said identifies as black, talk about any of that? 
we never talked about it. Um, but my, my brother probably experienced a lot harsher racism than I did um, because he, he was the only black child in, in the town. There was a couple of Asian kids because there was a, a veteran that had married, um, uh, a, uh, I think she's a Japanese woman um, and they lived up the road and there was another Asian family um, just in the other town that we went to the same school. But my brother really took the brunt of it um, because he was he was bigger. He's a, a, a bigger in stature and um, he's black. And so he, he couldn't hide the black curls and the, the thick um, black when, when he's out in the sun, he gets really dark or, or, or a lot darker. And um, but we never talked about it as kids. But for me, I I always knew I was Asian because because I'm I'm Asian, <laughs> and and people <laughs> people would oftentimes um, you know do the slanted eyes or, or you know pull their eyes back and talk about rice and um, you know talking gibberish to me. So it it was never a question whether I culturally who was I um, or at least ethnicity who was I. But culturally, I was more white. I was more American than than other Asians that they see in the movies, or um, they thought I should know karate, or you know all the other stereotypes um, right, that right. they would only know. So it sounds like, from what you said, I'm kind of gathering context clues that you didn't have a lot of contact with your culture of origin or did your did your family do anything to help you connect with with the culture or was that just kind of like a big mystery box it was a, a little bit of a mystery box and and um i think literally i had my adoption paperwork in box up that i would always get down every now and then and see the old newspaper clippings or um, i was interested as a boy in war so whether it was a civil war or vietnam war or other things. So I, I would see articles and things, um, but it wasn't something I was interested in. Uh, my, my parents took me to Hibachi restaurant because they, they like to take us all out to somewhere very different than what we could have in that small town. Um, but I was like, it's fine. But I, all I really like is the pineapple and the pineapple drink because I, I thought that was kind of a cool thing. But I was never interested in connected to that my culture growing up. Um, there was no restaurants. There was no um, community of, of other Vietnamese or um, even really Asian culture within our small town. And that wasn't who my parents were in community with. Yeah, no, that, that's just who my, my parents weren't in community with, with that community. So it, that's who I wasn't. Yeah. I think that's so interesting, too, because when we think, you know, and your story is of being vietnamese but when people think asian they think oh asian culture so we're going to take them to a chinese restaurant or a japanese restaurant and they're all the same and they're not right and this distinct cultures distinct foods and really because i always tell people like when we think about asian we're talking about one group of many many groups of people and we only think about maybe three or four i think vietnamese is like in population the fourth highest fourth or fifth highest where Chinese, Japanese, um, Filipino, and um, and Vietnamese, and then but then there's still other groups, you know, Thai and Hmong and all of these other, and then you you even when you add in Southeast Asian and what that means, and so just thinking about that, and you 
like everybody, and that's a, I think that's a stereotype, right? When you talk about people trying to slant their eyes or speak in gibberish, that often that is related to Chinese. Not that it, it should be related to anybody, but it's related to Chinese and not Vietnamese and people not knowing what the difference is. So even being a part of when, when Mel says your culture, it's like Vietnamese is still a smaller culture. And even if you had more Asian people, likely they would be Chinese or Japanese as a, a, a large population, which I think is very interesting as well. Mel, did you have a question? Yeah, I guess my question is, um, do, you, do you wish that had been different and you had had more access or d did you, uh, I don't know. I don't even really know how to ask that question, but um, yeah, what are your thoughts on that? And I guess, it, would you have done things differently as a parent in that situation? Hmm. Well, Mel, I think it's a profound question because as a parent now, I, I have had the opportunity to adopt. Um, it ended up being twin girls from Vietnam. Wow. Um, and and um, as a way for me when yeah, I did it. A, a connection back to culture as well wow. and trying to connect yeah. all at once. That's wow. Yeah. So um, I, I knew that's something that I was always interested in doing, but I probably didn't do it for the right reasons. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, as I've been doing this work, and, and try to talk to other pers perspective, foster parents, adoptive parents. Um, I try to share my experience as an adoptee, but even as an adopted parent now, or as a person who had who has um, had children in the foster foster care. Um, and I, I was never. <clears throat> I ask more questions of my daughters, like how do they identify? Do they even identify as Asian, as Vietnamese? Because they they could be very white passing in their very Western look. Um, they have long brown hair, but a lot of our kids in our, our town do, and they don't have darker, they don't have as dark a skin as I do, or um, they're, they're, they are definitely Vietnamese. People who are Vietnamese can immediately tell that they're Vietnamese, but most people would be like, you know, they're just another kid in their school. And so I have much different conversations than I, I have with my kids than my parents ever had with me. Um, no fault to my parents. It, they just, they didn't. And I'm in community with a lot, even in the, in the small community I live in, there's not a huge um, BIPOC population, Black, Indigenous, and, and other POC. There's actually a very large Indigenous population because there's a, a reservation that is right, literally right down the road from, from Green Bay. But, um, I try to put them in more community with people that are even different than the people that in their schools or the people that they would interact with um, in the other spaces in Green Bay that are historically predominantly white. Um, to answer your question though, I wasn't that curious about it. I think my parents asked me if I wanted to go to adoption camp once where adoptees can go because uh, there's a number of different uh, agencies that offer that as a post-adoption resource. I wanted to go to basketball camp. I wanted to go to a uh, baseball camp or that I didn't want to go be different with a, a community that was different. Um, but now <laughs> I, I actually um, had a, a resource come across my, my email of an adoptee network for youth. And I sent it over to my girls. I said, Hey, is this something you'd be interested in? Um, knowing that they would may say no, but want to give them more options to to be connected to 
if they are curious to talk about it more um, and to know what is their story and, and how does how do they fit in? Because their their mom is black, I'm Asian. They know that they they are adopted, um, and so I, I just want to try to give them as many resources to to work through it as well. How? Go ahead, Daniel. I was just thinking, like, to think about, and I think when we talk about like parent parental things, and I, I mean, and I have been on the vast of you know TikTok University where there are people like. I don't need to get to know my culture. I don't want to. And then there are kids who are like, I need to. And there's very differing stories. Um, my question will, I'll, I'll ask my question a little bit later because I'm just thinking about what should parents do? And I, and I, so I'm just thinking like, when you, as parents are engaging, are you, are you having children like doing it anyway? It's kind of like eat your vegetables. Like you need to know. And I think um, I was listening to a story, oh gosh, of by, by a woman whose name I can't, she wrote a book called um, uh, Engaging with the White Gaze or something about the white gaze. It's all, I'm, I'm jumbling my head right now, but she talked about um, her, like what parents, what adoptive parents, especially white adoptive parents need to do. And I think about what that looked like in choice and force and all of those things. I just, uh, I wonder, if it was younger and it was something that was normal and regular, when I say normal, I mean regular in your family, would you have not wanted to do it? Because it's, this is just something we do. Because a lot of times when parents put things in front of kids, this is what we do. We pray before dinner or we all go to soccer games because our because my brother's in soccer or my sister's in soccer. And it's just because, oh, that's just what we do. If they would have done it younger, right? Maybe before you had the choice or, or if, um, they would have engaged you in it when you were much, much younger, then maybe that would be something that would be regular. So I'm just thinking about, well, one question that I have for you is like, have you gone back to Vietnam and do you, can you talk about what that experience, you know, knowledge felt like, and then literally somatically felt like if it felt, if you felt anything in engaging in that. Cause I, 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 even though I'm not adopted, I mean, I feel like America kind of adopted us and they're bad adoptive parents of us. I, <laughs> I long to go to Africa and touch the shores of what that feels like, but I'm also trepidatious about taking that step. So I think about that and I, that's the only way I can conceptualize that, but I want to hear from you if that, what that feels like or felt like, or if you want to go back. Yeah. So before I answer that, let me just build on what you were saying about parents just doing their work. I think I, I would have probably been more curious as a kid to l learn more and do more. Maybe even if they would have been doing their work in terms of being an adoptive parent, um, a transracial adoptive parent at that. Um, and, and to have, we had very colorblind conversations versus anti-racist conversations um, or conversations that that um, I think parents who are adopting transracially really need to to understand more and question more so that they can be better adoptive parents, be better foster parents to the kids that um, are going to experience the world very differently than they have as many times as white parents. Um, and, and maybe that would have made given me more space to think about, hey, I can do this too, or, or this is kind of eating vegetables. They're doing it, so so I'll eat my vegetables too. Mm -hmm. um, to go back to, I, I have been very fortunate to go back to Vietnam, um, I think four times now. And growing up, 
again, I was more fearful of going to Vietnam. My parents would, would say um, they had a number of things that my siblings did before me. We all had to be lifeguards. We all had to be in band. We all had to take piano lessons and go to certain church camps. And we all did the same things. And one of the things that um, they encouraged all to do was to take a flight. We had to take a flight alone. Um, sometimes it was to visit our aunt um, who lived in the state of Oregon. Uh, I, I never did that. Um, but the other thing was they they said, you're going to go fly internationally. So my brother went on an international basketball trip. My sister went to Spain for uh, with their um, with their high school. And I never was interested until my senior year of college again. So it was all those things coming together. I was like, I don't need to go international. I don't really even have an interest. I don't like rice. I don't like seafood. Um, things that I now really do like. But I was very fearful of, I don't know the language. So I was very fearful to go back to Vietnam. Um, and But my senior year after I graduated, um, my mom and I were able to go back. And uh, it, was, it was an amazing experience to do with her, um, to, to experience the country, be very welcomed. Although when I first arrived, um, it, when you arrive, you have to fill out all the paperwork, your your visa and your customs and, and claim things. And and as I got to the gate, you know, there's these Vietnamese soldiers that um, I give them my paperwork and my mom goes through on one side and then I'm on this other side and give them my paperwork and they push it back at me, say something. And I, I'm like, they say, go back there. And so I go back and I'm looking at it and I'm like, I put my name right, it matches my passport. I, I have everything that I think. So I go back again and I give it to them and they're like, nope, go back. And I was like, are they just giving me a hard time because I can't speak the language or, you know, what is it? Um, and it ended up that I was writing on the, the paper with a red pen that I had from college and they said it cannot be in red ink. Uh, that's eventually what I found out. Um, but that other than that initial experience, everybody, whether it was going into a restaurant we, we had a number of, we befriended some Cyclo drivers. So a Cyclo is like a bike that you sit in the basket and, and then you can travel around the city. At that time, Vietnam was very, um, not as westernized and commercialized as it is now. There was, their stoplights were kind of optional and people literally, hundreds of people just walk across the street all in, in unison. And as my mom and I are looking at it, we're like, well, do we go, do we go? And then there, there was this little girl that just took my mom's hand and said, they're not going to try to hit you, just go. And, and she led us across the street. Um, and it was just like, oh, yeah, I guess you can just go and people slow down or speed up at a, at a national you get In America, you get hit. <laughs> you get hit. That's right. That's right. Um, but everywhere we went, it was that welcoming. Let me just show you. This is how you do it. Um, and I, I was able to go back to the city I was born in. Um, that was just a beautiful uh, beach resort type of town. Um, and I think I shared with you just recently, Taishal, but I was, I was, um, I just ran into someone that we were talking and lo and behold, she was adopted from Vietnam or no, she came over from Vietnam um, as a, on the boats. So there's a number of refugees that came over on boats. Um, at the end of the war. And she's like, I'm from Vong Tao. 
and I can remember the story of hiding underneath the statue. And it's the statue that you can't miss it. It's like this huge statue of Jesus and then a, a statue of uh, the Virgin Mary right below on, on the mountainside. And then there's these huge cannons still left from the war. And as I was meeting her at this conference, um, I was like meeting another sister. And, and then to literally feel like we were, we were in that space together from many miles away um, it's just every time I meet someone that um, is an adoptee, I have a connection, but even meeting someone that is literally from the town that I grew up in, that, that from that same time period that I escaped from, and that she remembers as a family being there and waiting um, to, to flee uh, the country um, was just really powerful. Wow. So you mentioned a few minutes ago that um, that that parents who intend to adopt transracially need to do the work. Can you, can you give us your advice for transracial parents? Would you say just don't do it? Like, or, or are there certain conversation about what does that look like? So are there certain people who should not adopt transracially or if, if they should, what qualifications or characteristics do you think they would? And then also I think, you know, this, this is a multifaceted question, but also, to the degree that you're comfortable sharing, uh, trying to communicate with people, especially I think I would assume w potential white parents who are trying to adopt transracially because whiteness has such um, an intense history in our country, to put it lightly, um, to help especially white folks understand some of the risks and dangers there and, and some of the traumas that are kind of what I gather somewhat inevitable in this process is that a fair characterization i, I think so um and i i ask a lot more questions versus trying to judge whether they should or shouldn't um if they've never thought about why are they adopting you know if if that hasn't even crossed their mind if they've just been like hey we want to adopt because it was my plan like my mom <laughs> i would have said time out that's wonderful that it's a plan, but why? Why is that important to you? And as you welcome that child into your home, transracially or, or non-transracially even, how are you going to support that child and the questions that are going to come up for them? I never had a question of whether um, my mom was my birth mom or not. Like, you can't. <laughs> She's a, a white blonde woman. So, but as I've over the years, you know, my, my birthday was just this last Sunday. Happy birthday. Yeah. Thanks. As my, as on mother's day, I try to honor those mothers that have had to really wrestle with and oftentimes had this, a similar trauma of having to choose to give their child up for whatever circumstance that might be. And if the adoptive parents can't understand, that perspective, then I would caution them to say, maybe maybe we need to think about it a little more. What is your why? What is, what is that child? What questions are they going to have? And and what are they going to experience? Because um, if, if the child is transracial and you live in a, a town or an area that is historically predominantly white, what are they going to experience? And how are you going to 
to shelter them to some extent, but also make sure they understand what what the limitations of that community are. Um, I'll, I'll give you an easy example uh, for myself. Like, and I didn't realize this until after I moved out of the, the small town I, I, I grew up in. But there were there I had a lot of young friends that were girls. Um, I like to play with dolls. I like to as much as I was a jock and a, a and a, a macho guy. I also had a lot of really good girlfriends, and I never dated anybody from that town. Even though we would hold hands, even though we would be on the phone till eleven and twelve o'clock at night, which was I don't know, maybe it was later than that, but it was really late as kids. And for all intents and purposes, it was like, well, you're dating Eric or you're dating Mike. Like, we're doing the same thing that you, everybody else is doing this day. How come we can't be dating? And what I realized is there was probably some families and some parents that said, you can date anybody. You can be friends with Adam, but you can't you can't date Adam. Mm. Um, and, and that's just the, the, the fact in, in a historically predominantly white town. And if parents don't understand that I that child might face similar rejection, no fault to their own, how are you gonna support them? Having to support a child that breaks up with, with someone that they are in love with is hard enough, but how are you gonna do it for someone that's transracial adopt, transracially adopted? Um, because it might be a very different conversation. And, and how do you work with that and understand what that child, the other child is going through and what their family dynamics are. Um, and we never talked about that as kids um, or as, as parent to child. So those would be some of the questions that I would wanna really question adoptive um, foster care parents who wanna do it from a, I, I just wanna do good, but how can you do good and do no harm or try to try to do no harm? I think about two things that you said in there that I'd love to get your perspective on, especially when we're talking about um, white, the white savior complex, right? Because doing good, white people doing good is often their, I don't know if they're trying to mitigate their own white supremacist culture or, or they think they can save everyone, right? And their their version of saving. And we, we can see that with um, uh, native kids who've been, um, in, in some of the, the residential schools because they're, what is it? Uh, I forget the, the terminology that they use about, um, uh, that they use about uh, adopting native children and, and what that looks like and, and engaging with what white savior complex looks like because it happens not only in, um, you know, white savior complex happens in movies, it happens with, you know, fully black people, it happens with non-adoptees, but what that looks like for, I want to adopt a child because it's a good thing to do. And that's any adoptive parent. What Before that, one thing that I was going to say in something that I feel like I've learned from some of the fantastic people on TikTok, which I'll make sure I, I link after this episode on our socials, is adoption, no matter whether it's transracial or same race adoption, is trauma. Adoption starts with trauma, right? And you can, they, they've studied this in, and I don't want to make it like any um, like connection with animals, but we, we are mammals, we are animals. It, when you lose a parent, that's a traumatic loss. 
So if you think I'm going to adopt a baby versus a 10 year old and I don't have to deal with all of the problems that come with it, that's just not true, right? Adoption is a trauma. There's loss there. And even if you haven't, as you talked about in your story, haven't like investigated it or, or, or worked through it, there's still trauma. And even if you were adopted at birth, you still know something's not the same or something is different. There are people who've gone through you know, massive traumas that's in front of them that they can see. And then there's trauma that you can't necessarily see, right? Like an internal wound that you don't know is there, but it's there. So I, I, I caution any adoptive person who wants to adopt or foster investigating their own white savior complex, but also investigating like every parent. And Mel, you grew up with your birth parents. I grew up with my birth parents. Um, we all need to be setting aside money for college and therapy, like simultaneously, right? Like, because it is, we go through trauma in our childhood. I mean, living in America is a trauma in its own and living in most countries, but living in America is a, is a trauma in its own. And if you're not ready to engage with that, then you're probably not ready to adopt whether, no matter whether that child is, because whether that child is is the same race or a different race, because one of the things that also is talked about is this thought process of open adoption. And, and one of the things that I learned is that people do open adoptions. People often adopt interracially or inter, I'm sorry, internationally because they think, oh, well, the birth parents aren't ever going to contact us. Right. So I don't want to not feel like their parent that happens. And then but also most open adoptions, there's no legal note for open adoption most open adoptions end up closed by the child's fifth birthday um that's the 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 the, the work that the um the statistics that have gone into that where kids are open you see that person regularly and it changes and it fades because sometimes the birth parents want to know more they want to do more that kind of thing where by the child's uh fifth birthday that has gone closed because there's no legal precedent for keeping an, an open adoption but i wanted to hear your perspective one because you have a, a, a such a unique perspective being an adoptee but also working in dei about um white guilt and white savior com not white guilt sorry white savior complex and what you would say about that for adopted parents perspective and actual and please feel free to speak freely you're not going to say anything that will offend me no please hurt Mel's feelings she needs to be put on <laughs> yeah I to, to tie these two questions together Mel and and Dyshell, I think if the a prospective adoptive parent doesn't understand what the white savior complex is yeah. and and how it manifests itself within their own experience um whether it's how they volunteer whether it's how how they've um maybe interacted within their community if we can't even have that conversation if it makes them that uncomfortable to really talk about it explore it and and have them reflect on it to to change, um, then my advice would be maybe you're, this isn't the best situation for you to, to adopt transracially. Yeah, that's um, a pretty good barometer, it seems like. Yeah. I mean, even uh, within within my own community, as um, the Green Book came out a number of years ago, um, and I, I was not a fan. I, I just, after I saw it, I was like, it's just not sitting well with me because I think it's another example of a white saver complex. And there was white people in that conversation that 
how I describe it is they just have racial fatigue. You say white savior complex and they're just like, why are you talking about me? And I'm like, I'm not talking about you. Yeah. I'm talking about, um, you know, this movie that is portraying something that you need to understand. And um, if, if they can't do that work, then they are going to um, put that child in harm's way because how are they, how are they going to um, understand when maybe at their school or maybe within the, the church, if they raise them in a church or somewhere in their community, there are going to be people that um, harm their child. And how are they going to, good meaning, white people, how are they going to address that? Yeah. Or are they going to say, oh, Mrs. Jones was just trying to be nice. She was just trying to touch, um, you know, my child's hair. And that's okay. She's, I know she's a nice white lady because I went to church with her for the last 10 years. Well, that's not good enough for that child as, as they have to then unpack that and, and, and wrestle with that. And that's just a, a really simple you yeah. know, thing that is going to impact that child. But that parent really has to, to understand. So that's a difficult situation to be in, right? Because how do you advocate for your child without being a white savior? Like, is it really possible to, for white people to adopt transracially and not be white saviors? I guess is my question. Maybe it's not, but you just have to do the best you can. I have a, uh, so I was watching, when we were prepping for this, I was watching an interview with a woman, and this is the book I was talking about earlier, whose name I couldn't remember, her name is Rebecca Carroll. She wrote, her book is called Surviving the White Gaze. And she was being interviewed on The Daily Show and she was asked this question, like, do you think it's okay for uh, white parents to adopt transracially? Specifically, she's a black person. And she said, you can only adopt a black child if you're ready to raise a black adult. Right. And that means it may mean moving. It may mean immersing your culture. It may or yourself in a different culture. It may mean it not. Not it may mean it should mean. And I, I also saw there was a TikTok that I posted on our social um, that there was a white there are two adoptive white parents and a I think she's biracial, but a black girl. I'm going to say she's black because I think that's how she identified. And her parents, I saw them say the understanding they said we are actually the fourth best option for her the fourth and they said first would be a loving home um that's financially secure that's the first option for every child the second would be a family member of that same culture someone in the community or family well someone in the family that would bring them up in that same family structure third would be an adoptive parent that is of the same race and fourth is us not a home that a home that is loving but doesn't have those qualifications and we have put our we put ourselves in a place where we need to do more work so that person can live the best life in engaging in her culture without because that's the thing i think is different than that what you talked about in your upbringing is not that your parents tried to force you to be white adam but like they didn't do anything to immerse themselves in a culture so it just felt natural to be Vietnamese, right? Going to, like, oh, we go to Vietnam every year. Oh, we go to, you know, wherever your brother may be from, if it's that the town or, or whatever, or we go to black barbershops or we go to Vietnamese restaurants and moving, right? Because often parents will, like, if you are on your, having your first child, you will move to go to the right school in kindergarten. That's a huge thing. I worked in a 
in a um in a <laughs> in a kinder I worked in a, a preschool and parents would be like oh yeah we're moving so we can be closer to the right school that's the kind of fervor that parents need to have in adoption and transracial adoption because you need to immerse yourself in the culture before you that child comes to your home while your child's at that home because they may not want to and it's okay if you don't want to immerse yourself in a culture as a certain as an adult but that culture is actually a a mitigating mental health factor if you are involved and engaged in your own culture and this would go for white people as well um as if you are white and you're engaged in your home culture not whiteness then you will have less mental health issues because you have a connection to community that everyone else has. So I think about that a lot. Yeah. And Mel, I think even your question would be a great question for that white parent, white family to even consider. I don't think it, it's even something that is considered because many times they're just like, well, there's kids that need a home. I saw the sign down the road that said uh, looking for loving families. So I'm a loving family and, and I can provide love and care, but is that enough? I think having people investigate is, is um, can I be the, the fourth best choice? Am I the fourth best choice as, as Michelle was just sharing? And to understand that being fourth is not, sometimes that's the best case scenario for that child because yeah. one, two, and three aren't there. But I would say that parents really need to be on an anti-racist journey if if they have never been in community with the the community that they're adopting from you got to do that at some point um if, if you aren't already if you aren't uh really trying to understand hey how am i gonna um embrace this child and let them their full culture come out whether it's how they dress how they do their hair um i i've had some parents that have adopted black children, they're like, I didn't know where to get their hair done. So I asked someone in the Walmart parking lot. I'm like, oh, Ow. let me tell you, I have met many a black, a white adoptive parent of black children. If you go to a black, black people will help you. We are a welcoming people. If you let that kid walk around with their hair a mess, we are going to come for you. It is a thing because appearance is, is important to black people because that's something that we didn't get to engage with. And, and I think I think about that. And I, Adam, I would I would say venture to say not that uh, parent, not, they, they need to be every every person and, and all adoptive parents should be on this anti-racist journey. But we need to know that love is included in immersing yourself in that child's culture is included in the love that you're going to provide. And that happens, honestly, too, with biracial children where they go, well, I just didn't know I married a black person. I'm, I love that black person. I married an Asian person. I love that Asian person. But if you don't know anything about that culture, then that's a problem, right? Because you're saying it's enough for me to be white and just be nice. And it's like, that's not enough. Um, and I would say the same for a black person dating a Vietnamese person or a, a Latinx person. Like you need to know your uh, another person's culture and engage with that culture as well. Not to say you're going to become that because you should not take on other people's personas in life and ethnicities, um, which is a whole other story that maybe if we have time to tell it, Adam knows this story. But just thinking about engaging with that person's culture, like you can't have, you should not have a child who is deaf and never learned sign language. That's just not acceptable. And that is included in real, real love. 
That's a great analogy. Yeah. The other thing that comes to mind is, and I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, Adam, as we're wrapping up, but um, what I see a lot in perspective, white adoptive parents uh, is a, is really a sense of entitlement. And I'll say this as someone who myself has faced some infertility stuff that I know I've met quite a few white folks who can't bear children and they feel, act, they, they, they act as if they are entitled to be parents and they don't really consider the trauma that someone has gone through in order to make that child adoptable. And I think unless you're also working toward um, ending, for example, the economic conditions that would force people to have to put their kids up to for adoption in the first place, if you're not also working toward that economic liberation, then it, you are acting from a place of entitlement. And and so I guess my final question- word. Is, That is a word, Mel, because if you're not working, and I'm gonna I'm repeat, if you're not working to end that financial situation where someone would have to put their child up for adoption, then you're probably not on, on, on an anti-racist journey because- Or mass incarceration, yeah. Right, mass incarceration, because people, I think they've said, I've, I've heard in, in adoption language and adoption circles that um, if people had $10,000 more than when they were pregnant, they probably wouldn't have been able to keep their baby or because even $10,000 at that time where they're pregnant and about to bear that child will set them up. And the irony is we take those kids out of the home and we put them in foster care and we pay a foster parent to raise that child and traumatize that child further. And the, if we had just given the parent, the original parent that money in the first place, we, we could, we could, we need to have a whole nother episode on foster care. So anyway, Adam, the last question I had for you was, what are your thoughts? Do you have thoughts on the adoption industry on the money it changes hands? Because in my understanding, it is cheaper. It is cheaper to adopt a, a child of color internationally and nationally, I understand. So um, what, what are your thoughts on that? If you have any, I think that's the the ugly beast that often is not talked about that I didn't fully understand until I went through the adoption process. So the adoption process is so invasive in terms of, you know, having to explain your, your bank account, having to explain what your house, how you run your house, what your, your background is. All those things are, are really invasive for adoptive parents. But the adoption industry that benefits billions of dollars to the, the agencies and to people that aren't um, supporting the post-adoption, that aren't supporting these families, is has to be part of the reform, part of the liberation, um, because it, it it's just not right that um, the system is benefiting. Um, and, and when I say the system, I, I mean institutions are benefiting from um, from the white privilege, from many times the white families that have the resources and access and and believe they, hey, I, if I can't bear children on my own, I should be able to be a parent. They are, the system is benefiting from it. So I think that has to be part of the, the reform that um, I just didn't understand until I actually lived through it as well. I, I wanna say two things. I'll tell this short story because it's probably only a minute long, but one of the things I think when we're talking about adoptive parents that I learned through wanting to adopt and being interested in adoption my whole life is that children are not commodities. And you don't, you're not, as you were talking about um, Mel, this entitlement, um, adoption, adoptive children or children placed up for adoption, you're not entitled to a child and they can't only be there to fulfill your parental needs. Now you yeah. want to give them a home that's a, that is a savior complex part of it that you have to work through, but you also, 
that child is going to grow up and be their own person and you have to be ready for that. That's why I think all parents should go to parenting classes. If you're not like they should give you the, the whatever you all of the things you hate, they should put it in one person. And that's your test model for a child because you as a parent, because you don't know who your child is going to grow up to be. You just don't. So if you don't like LGBTQ people, if you don't want your child to to be a, a, a stripper or whatever, what's going to happen? Right. You don't know. And your child has to you have to be ready to love whatever child comes to you, whether they are disabled, whether they all of these th different things. So I think about that as the as the part of that. But you're not entitled to a child. You're, they're not a commodity. They're not there to fix your infertility issues. They are there to be a part of a family that you have to be ready to engage with who they are and not just what you what you're looking to fulfill. And all of who they are, not just the bits and pieces you're comfortable with. And that is a part of love. When we say love and care, that's a part of the love and care that I think is really important. That has changed my mind about how and if I will adopt and what that thought process, what that actual process will go through and being ready, right? Because there's a difference in readiness um, to be a parent. And so the other thing I wanted to, to, to share is often people adopt children and they, especially if you're adopting from a different race. You are also, the one thing is not being engaged with that child's race, but you are also, that doesn't become a part of your identity. Um, I had a I had a white man say to me that, um, and, and Adam was, was there, so I know he knows the story. I'm not gonna, I won't give any names or places or too many identifying information, but that person said, well, you don't, um, we were talking about talking about race in a conversation and Adam was, we're really on this conversation about somatic, really understanding, really engaging, really feeling and taking care of yourself. And this person was like, you, well, you don't see my intersectionality. I have a, a black child. And, and I was like, well, that, that's not intersectionality. That ain't got any, first of all, Kimberly <laughs> Crenshaw did say that. And what does that mean? That's not a part of your personality. Having a black child, having a, an Asian child, like you can be like, I really loved anime. Now I got an Asian child. And like, that's not you, that's not you becoming. So that's not your, it's not a personality trait. It's not a part of your intersectionality. And you really need to learn a little better. And I think what, cause that part, that, that time sticks out in my mind so desperately, so desperately because they were saying to a black person at, that their intersectionality was them having a black child. And I just, and I was like, that's really audacious of you as a white person to say part of your, your intersectionality as a person is that person's race. And I think that person need to, needs to be on a journey because I wonder how that child will then explain. It's like, wait, dad, you're not black and you won't ever experience that. And I say that to my white husband, we talk about that. Are you ready to have a child that may not look like you or identify as the same as you? what will that look like for you, right? And the same for me, I don't, I won't know what it's like to be biracial, but we will, we are talking about raising our children to be black people, but I don't know if they'll change. I don't know if they will say we're, we, we actually identify as biracial and not black mom. And I'll be like, okay, you know, and I, but I have to engage with that. So I just want to say that there's the, there's the parents group of white parents and and it's not just white parents but it's more more adoptive parents are white than anything else and that it that follows in line with all the industrial complex white supremacy culture all of those things they adopt children of color it just it, they don't engage with that child's culture or it becomes a part of their personality
Like the, neither one of those are the ways that we should be engaging. And this is that part of that anti-racist journey. Um, and also I hope that man gets a lot of education because he gives, he was giving me a, he's still not one of my favorite people. He's still on the least of my favorite people because he was hurt by me saying something about it. And I was like, but we could talk about that offline. Did you just, yell, did you just yell the carcassity? <laughs> you, and, it, and also because it was a man, I just wanted to be like, the audacity of whiteness and man rolled up into one. Oh, that would have gone over real well. <laughs> yeah, I, I, well, I was, I did, I, I was really, really. I know that I can be cutting with my words. So I was really trying to be professional and really trying to be subtle and nice. And that person apparently was so hurt that I said that that's not a part of their identity. I was like, but it ain't though, girl. And I, I did follow up to have a conversation. And I was like, oh no, me, you just see things fundamentally different. Oh, we not going, that's not gonna work because it's not a thing. So, but anyway, uh, Adam, we just want to say thank you for yeah, thank sharing. Thank you so much. This is, yeah, it's, sorry, go ahead, Taishal. I was just going to say thank you for sharing some of what you know. We will likely have to bring you back to talk more about anti-racism specifically because I know Adam and I get to do a lot of work together and we, we have moved into the place of trying to bring somatics into it. So that'll be important. But just for sharing some of your story, because like, um, uh, we talked a little bit about earlier, no one's entitled to that story. So we thank you for sharing that. Um, I don't know how much therapy you'll need after this, but I will buy you a coffee so you can have it while you sit on your therapist couch. Cause I don't have the, um, we were joking earlier about how Adam has a Peloton. Uh, I don't have Peloton money. So I can buy you a coffee while you sit on that couch <laughs> or I can buy you a, a, a new basketball. Cause I know you like sports ball, Adam. I don't, I don't know. Um, but Any final words though, Adam, I, I would love to hear if like, you know, we, Exactly. Any final pieces of advice or things that people should know? Mm. We could be here for hours, uh, but I, I would just say thank you for creating this brave space to talk about these topics um, that are so rich and meaningful to bring in people from the different communities to be a part of these conversations. I have benefited from them um, as, a, as a listener and I really appreciate you being great hosts and partners uh, in this work, uh, in this brave space. So thank you. Thanks for being here. This has been really, really great. Awesome. All right, Joe, I will say roll that beautiful bean. No, I don't want to, I don't want to have to pay anybody money. <laughs> roll the outro music and we'll <laughs> see you all next time. See you next time. Bye-bye.